This evening, as we prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord, I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. This morning, I was speaking of the threefold use of the law of God, the moral law of God. And the third use is that indeed it is a map for believers. For those who have come to faith in Christ, it is a map. It guides us. It leads us. It is a rule of obedience, a standard of obedience. But this evening, I want us to focus on one of the blessings and promises of the new covenant that enables us to be able to do what it says. And that is the work of God in Christ and then in the work of the Spirit in enabling us to do what he has commanded. I'll be reading Hebrews 8 verses 1 through 13, but we'll focus eventually our attention on verse 10 and that particular promise of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 beginning in verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Again, he's talking here about ceremonial law, uh, ceremonial law that was still being observed. Uh, Most believe that this was written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and so he's making reference there to the fact that they're still offering gifts uh, in that temple. Uh, Verse 5. He speaks of those gifts in the priest who served there, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the, the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained, the Lord Jesus, a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will remember their iniquities, 
I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Believers, these are words of exceeding joy. These verses contain a quotation from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, which describe the promises and the blessings of the new covenant. These promises are fourfold. There is the promise of the law of God written on their hearts and minds. Verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. This new covenant is internal, not external. That is, God will give the power and the ability to keep His commandments. The second promise is a promise of a personal relationship with the living God. We see that in verse 10. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 18. I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The third promise is a promise that all in this new covenant will know him. Verse 11, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. Israel, under the old covenant, was a mixed community of believers and unbelievers. A person was part of the Old Covenant by virtue of their birth. Not so with the New Covenant. A person is a part of the New Covenant by the new birth. That is, by being born again of the Spirit. And as a result of that work of the Spirit, one placing his or her faith in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. All who are truly in the New Covenant will know Him. And then there is the fourth promise. There's the joyous promise of sins forgiven. Verse 12, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So those are four promises from Jeremiah, the prophet, now spoken of here in Hebrews, that speaks of this being a better covenant than the old covenant for those reasons. The promise of the law of God here, the moral law of God, and written into their minds, on their hearts, the promise of this personal relationship with the living God, the promise that all in the new covenant will know Him, and then the promise of sins forgiven. What blessings there are in the new covenant. And how are all these promises possible? Well, the writer to the Hebrews in this chapter and throughout really is extolling the virtues of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. These promises are possible because of the mediator of the new covenant. Jesus has accomplished all these things by His work. He has secured these things by His blood. He is really the theme of all of the book of Hebrews, and we see it here in chapter 8 as He comes to sort of a pinnacle in His writing When he says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. When I say those words, some of you were here when I preached on 
Hebrews 8 verse 1 and my exposition through that letter. And we just took a week and, and stopped and sort of reveled in the words, we have such a high priest. This is the kind of high priest we have. These words in verse 1 magnify Jesus and cause Christians to stand in awe of him. We have such a high priest. This is the mediator of the new covenant. It is good for us to bask in the glory of the new covenant. You've heard the phrase, basking in the sun. It's a picture of a contented person delighting in the warmth of the sun. Well, it's good for us to bask in the sun, S-O-N. It's good for us, and it's good for the perseverance of our souls to bask in and meditate on and, and delight in the blessings of the new covenant secured by the blood of our Savior. That's why we sing such hymns as His oath, His covenant, His blood. Support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. The hymn writer is basking in the the glory of the new covenant and the glory of the mediator of that covenant. This better covenant is the new covenant in the blood of the Lord Jesus. Remember the words of Jesus in the upper room with his disciples just before his death? He instituted the remembrance of this new covenant when he said in Luke 22, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when he took the cup and he said, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Well, this evening we gather in obedience to the command of Jesus, to remember the death of Jesus, to partake in the bread and the cup, and to bask in the glory of the new covenant, and to remember what he has secured for us, this one who has shed his blood for us. In this chapter, and really throughout the book of Hebrews, there's a contrast, a contrast of covenants, the first and the second. The old and the new. The new is better than the old. The new covenant is enacted on better promises. It has a better mediator with a better ministry. The old, he says here in verse 7, was not faultless, but the new covenant is faultless because it has a perfect mediator, a perfect sacrifice. The old covenant was established at Sinai with Israel The new covenant is established with the new covenant people of God made up of Jew and Gentile in the one body, namely the church. In the old covenant, there is the inadequacy of the types and shadows and sacrifices. They they weren't inadequate for pointing to Christ, but they were inadequate to take away sin. They were reminders of sin year by year. Every sacrifice was a reminder of sin. But in the new covenant... There's a reminder of sins forgiven. This is my body. This is my blood. It is through my work and this sacrifice that your sins are wiped away. In the old covenant, there was the inability to transform the heart. But the new, there is a transformed heart. 
The old covenant was temporary. The new covenant continues. He says here in verse 13, the old covenant was about to become obsolete. And and there he's referring to a historical event. Again, the destruction even of the temple in 70 AD. The new covenant is never obsolete. In verse 7, he says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second a second covenant. The word faultless means blameless. There was some defect, you might say, in the first covenant. The defect wasn't the covenant itself. God in His infinite wisdom enacted the old covenant. He did it, according to verse 9, He says, When I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. And you remember in Exodus chapter 19, that is, uh, there's an account of that, him taking them by the hand, so to speak, leading them out of Egypt. And it says in Exodus 19, verse 5, God says to them, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. And they all spoke back to him in Exodus 19 verse 8 and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now notice the condition, the if then. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. And they said, we will do it. And they repeated that in Exodus 24 verse 3. All that the Lord has commanded, we will do. But they didn't. The problem wasn't the covenant itself. The problem was those with whom it was enacted. The old covenant was enacted by a holy God and contained holy commandments, holy ordinances, holy laws. The old covenant contained types and shadows that would be fulfilled in the new covenant. So ultimately, the problem that that made it not faultless, was not the covenant itself. It wasn't God. It wasn't His law. The problem was with the people. And that's why in Hebrews 8, verse 8, it says here, for finding fault with them. Not with the covenant, but with them. And it says in verse 9, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord. So they did not continue in the covenant. They promised they would. They they vowed they would. They said they would keep it. But they didn't continue in it. They didn't persevere and persist in the covenant. Israel was described as an obstinate, stiff-necked people. Always going astray. Their time in the wilderness was marked by complaining and unbelief. Yet God was always faithful. He didn't violate the covenant on his end. God always kept a remnant of faithful people. But as a whole, as a nation, they did not keep the covenant made at Sinai. Therefore, it says God did not care for them. The consequences of their not keeping covenant was the discipline and judgment of God. They were exiled out of the land. And so again, ultimately, the problem was not 
the covenant. The problem was with the people. One commentator put it this way. The blame for this broken covenant lay squarely on the unfaithful people. The old covenant did not convey to the people the inward power needed to fulfill its demands. It is in this respect that the new covenant is better. The new covenant works internally. It transforms those who come to God through it. The new covenant enables the people to keep the covenant. The old covenant shut up everyone under sin. Galatians 3 verse 22. It was a covenant that showed the sinfulness of man and the need for this internal work of grace, namely regeneration. Uh, That covenant, that first covenant, was bilateral. If you do this, then I will do this. God made promises dependent on the obedience of the people. On the other hand, the new covenant is dependent on the obedience of the one, the Lord Jesus. And the promises made to them is dependent upon the one. It's a unilateral covenant. Notice the stress in Hebrews chapter 8 in verse 9. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. Now I did not care for them, says the Lord. But notice in verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God. They shall be my people. The emphasis here is on what God will do. I will do this. I will write my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And as the new covenant is is explained in the book of Hebrews and the rest of the Bible, the emphasis is on what the mediator of that new covenant would do and did. The obedience of Jesus is our righteousness. The blood of Jesus is our propitiation. I will, God says, do this. This emphasizes what we call divine monergism. You're familiar with the word monergism. It's a theological word. Mono, one. The second part comes from the Greek word ergos. means work. The work of one. The new covenant emphasizes divine monergism. It emphasizes the work of one, the work of God in salvation. When we consider the old covenant requirements to keep the law, we might think of a quote often attributed to John Bunyan, although in its original words, it probably predates Bunyan. Bunyan put it like this, it said, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. The 18th century Scottish preacher Ralph Erskine said this, this this predates Bunyan. A rigid matter was the law, demanding brick, denying straw. But when with gospel tongue it sings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. The old covenant was not faultless. It commanded what sinners could not do. 
So the problem is not with the covenant or the law itself. The law is holy and righteous. It's good. The problem is with sinners who can't keep covenant with God. So in that sense, the second covenant, as it's called in Hebrews, is a better covenant. It's a better covenant enacted upon better promises. We could say it this way by quoting the words of Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, our flesh was weak, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And just glory in the, and bask in those words. This is the new covenant. Now this evening, as we come to the table of the Lord, I want us to just focus our attention on that first promise. That first promise in verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. Before we see what's different from the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in this promise, we have to consider what's not different. The emphasis of the passage is the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That is what's different. We could use the word discontinuity between those two covenants. But notice something here that is not different. Notice the continuity between the Old and the New Covenants. Or we could simply say, here's something that's the same. What's the same? When verse 10, God speaks of my laws. My laws. The writer of Hebrews is obviously not talking about laws pertaining to sacrifices in the temple or tabernacle and the worship of God in those places or priests. He's obviously not talking about ceremonial law here. Those laws are abrogated. That's made clear all throughout the book of Hebrews. Those laws had to do with prophetic types and shadows which served their purposes when the fulfillment was realized in Jesus Christ in the new covenant. Those were temporary laws pointing to Christ. Then what law is he talking about that he would put into their minds and write on their hearts? Well, this is referring to the moral law of God. That has not changed. Those laws which are related to and flow from the very holy and righteous character of God are required of all, as we've seen, of all times and all places. The moral law of God is not abrogated. So the contrast isn't between some kind of old law and now a new law. The newness of the new covenant doesn't mean that there's a change in the moral law of God. That, that's even somewhat of an oxymoron to talk of a change in the moral law of God. It, it can't be, for God hasn't changed. His moral standards have not changed. So the, it's the same moral law in the Old Covenant that we have in the New Covenant, encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. So in this sense, there's continuity between the Old and the New Covenants. It's the same moral law. But here is the discontinuity between the Old and New Covenants. In the Old Covenant, the moral law was written on tablets of stone. In the New Covenant, the moral law is put into the minds and on the hearts of believers. 
The moral law of God has not changed, but you might say the location of the law has changed. Where these laws are written is significant and means something that is a great blessing of the new covenant. I will put my laws, the moral law of God that has not changed, into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. This is the promise of God of an inward work of grace. Focus on the word inward. Into their minds. On their hearts. This is the inward work of God. The contrast is between that which is internal as opposed to that which is external. The old covenant gave God's laws, but but they were external. When God gave the moral law to Israel under the old covenant, it was written on tablets of stone. We know that from the accounting in Exodus. The Apostle Paul, a minister of the New Covenant, makes the same contrast in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, when he says, You are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. This is the promise of an inward work. This speaks of an inward work of grace, indeed a powerful work of God, in the minds and on the hearts of his people. And it is a a divine work. Again, God says, I will do this. I will do this. No one else can do this work. It is the work of God. I consider this divine and inward work further with this question. What does it mean that God's laws are put into the minds and written on the hearts of those in the new covenant. This isn't just about the location. By saying that these laws are placed into the minds and onto the hearts, it has to do with understanding, receiving, believing, loving, and doing. Apart from this divine and inward work of God, there would be no true understanding, no true receiving, believing, loving, or doing God's laws. So the promise has to do with the ability of these things that I've just mentioned. It has to do with the spiritual state of those in the new covenant and the posture and disposition of those in the covenant toward the moral moral law of God. In the old covenant, the moral law was given... However, not all under the Old Covenant understood, received, believed, loved, and obeyed God's moral law. Not all had the ability to do it. And that's evident. They did not continue in that covenant. Just giving the law doesn't give the ability. It doesn't give the ability to understand it, to receive it, to love it, to keep it. In fact, when... The moral law meets an unregenerate, spiritually dead heart and mind. Instead of understanding, reception, love, and obedience, there's ignorance, rejection, unbelief, hatred, disdain, and disobedience. There must be this divine inward work of grace, putting his laws into minds and writing them on hearts. Again, the Apostle Paul said it this way, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. God did. The law of God, just given externally, cannot accomplish salvation or obedience. Why? Its weakness is not 
the law itself. The weakness is the flesh, our sinful state. The law, as we'll see next week in the morning in Romans 7, the law just arouses our sinfulness. So here again we see the contrast. The law of God was written on tablets of stone, but that couldn't change the heart. The tablets of stone expose our inability to keep God's law. The moral law of God on tablets of stone shows simply our utter sinfulness, our sinful condition. When you think of the opposite of what this means, that the law of God is written into the minds and on the hearts, you might think of passages like Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 19. Listen to these words. This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. They're referring to those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. How do they walk and how did we once walk before this work of God? In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, So there it's talking about the mind, futility of the mind, darkened in their understanding, ignorance that is in them. Why? Because of the hardness in their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. This is man in his fallen, sinful state. It's not as though his mind isn't able to comprehend certain things. You can have an intellectual fool, a noble fool, a wealthy and successful fool, a knowledgeable fool, an articulate fool. A person can use his mind to invent wonderful things and then deny that there's even a God. Deny their own sin. According to the scripture, the mind before salvation is sinful, depraved, defiled, foolish, darkened, futile, blinded, hostile toward God. Sinners need divine grace. They have hard, calloused hearts with no feeling toward the things of God. But in contrast to that are those in the New Covenant. Those in the new covenant in the blood of Christ are those who have this divine and inward work of grace that puts his laws into their minds and writes his laws on their hearts. They are new creatures in Christ. There's a new creation, a new mind, a new heart. You see, an external law brings no power and ability. A magnet on your refrigerator with a Bible verse can't produce a heart to do it. I'm tempted to ask how many of you have magnets on your refrigerators with verses. Not that that's a bad thing, but you know how this is. We can have those things in our homes on the magnets on refrigerators or decorations or other things that have Bible verses on them. And then they're, they're all around us and then yet we don't do them. We sin. When it's right in front of us. That magnet can't change the heart. A frame hung on the wall with the words, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor, can't bring the power to do it. It may convict you of sin when you don't love God and love your neighbor. It may restrain you from doing certain things for fear of God's discipline. However, the law, 
merely given externally, can't bring delight in the law of God. Nor can it bring the power to do it. God must put laws into our minds and write them on our hearts. God must do this work of grace which will change our minds and hearts and bring about a new mind, a new heart, new desires. Those in the new covenant, by faith in Christ, have this effectual work of God. This new disposition toward the moral law of God. Ezekiel 36 verse 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. If our hearts are like stone, dead and unresponsive, then the law will have no effect. If God gives a heart of flesh, beating and alive, then there's understanding, faith, love, and obedience. In the new covenant, there's a new mind. The believer can love God and love his law with all his mind. He comprehends God. He knows God. He lives in light of who God is. He has a new love. Once in enmity with God, he now loves him. There is a new heart with new and holy desires which are in conformity with the law of God. When God saved me at age 17, I have vivid memories of now just new desires. Now, what does God want me to do? What? Everything in life was seen differently now. And increasingly, as I then began to read the moral law of God, it was now an understanding of it and a desire to do it. It was in my mind and on my heart, and, and I wanted to know what it says. said. Matthew Henry put it this way. He once wrote his laws to them. Now he will write his laws in them. That is... He will give them understanding to know and to believe his law. He will give them memories to retain them. He will give them hearts to love them and consciences to recognize them. He will give them courage to profess them and power to put them into practice. The whole habit and frame of their souls shall be a table and transcript of the law of God. This is the foundation of the covenant. And when this is laid... Duty or obedience will be done wisely, sincerely, readily, easily, resolutely, constantly, and comfortably. Does that describe you? Again, we're not saying there's no battle. We still have remaining corruption. But there is a battle because now the law of God is written into our minds and written on our hearts. And now we have the power to do them. We want to do them. We desire to do them. They're not burdensome to us. They're our delight. This promise of the new covenant, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, is related to the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have the indwelling Spirit. In the words of Ezekiel 36... When it said, I will give you a heart of flesh, he goes on to say, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. 
This is the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerates sinners. He makes them alive. The Holy Spirit dwells in the believer and makes him long for and delight in the law of the Lord. As it says in Romans 8 verse 9, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he doesn't belong to him. How do you know you have the Spirit of God? You see evidence of it. The law of God is your delight. You have the power by His grace and by His work and enablement to do it. The words of A.W. Pink are appropriate here. He said this, These words have reference to the effectual operations of the Spirit in His supernatural and saving illumination of our understandings, whereby they are made habitually conformable unto the whole law of God, which is our rule of obedience in the new covenant. The carnal mind is enmity against God and is not subject to His law. Neither indeed can be. But when we are renewed by the Spirit, Pastor Ernest read that renewing of the Holy Spirit in Titus 3 to begin our service. When we are renewed by the Spirit, He works in us a submission to the authority and revealed will of God. As the Lord opened the heart of Lydia that she received the things that were spoken by Paul, so in the miracle of the new birth, the Christian is given an ear to heed and a mind to perceive the holiness, justice, and goodness of God's law. Yea, the law is effectually applied to him so that it becomes the former of his thoughts, the subject of his meditation, and the regulator of his ways. This is the work of the Spirit. The preacher can preach. The parent can teach. The believer can proclaim the gospel. But this effectual work must be done by God in the mind and heart of sinners. For those who are the recipients of such grace, it secures willing obedience to the gospel and a continued desire and power to do His will. What is your disposition toward God's word, his commands, his moral law? That will tell you something of the state of your soul. It will tell you something about whether or not you are alive in Christ or still dead in your trespasses and sins. It will tell you whether or not you have a heart of stone or whether you have a heart of flesh. Your disposition toward the moral law of God will tell you whether you have the Holy Spirit or whether or not you're still enslaved to the Spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. Is His law your delight? Do you love His law? Is it written into your mind and is it on your heart? When Stephen proclaimed the truth in Acts chapter 7, those who rejected God's word put their hands over their ears. You may not literally physically do that, but is that the disposition of your heart? Do you find that you cannot obey God's moral law? And if you do not and cannot, it may be because you do not have his laws written into your mind and on your heart by this gracious work of God, you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. You need to examine yourself. As we come to the table of the Lord, that's part of the reason we should come examining ourselves.
Again, the words of A.W. Pink are appropriate. He said this, pause here and lift up your heart to God, asking for grace and wisdom to honestly examine yourself in light of this verse. He said this, you may sit under the sound and scriptural ministry every Sabbath, but what effect has it upon your inner man? You may well be acquainted with the letter of the word, but how far is it directing the details of your daily walk? Does your mind dwell most on temporal or eternal things, material or spiritual? What engages your thoughts in your seasons of recreation? Is your heart fixed upon God or upon the world? There are thousands of professing Christians, and I think we could say millions, of professing Christians who can talk glibly of the Scriptures, but whose lives give no evidence that God has written His laws into their hearts. Are you one of this class, he asks? Those in the new covenant, in the blood of Christ, have his laws placed into their minds and written on their hearts. There's this divine and inward work by his almighty power that causes the believer to delight in his law, love his law, meditate on his law, and causes him to walk in his law. And the whole ability to do it, again, is by His work and the power of the Holy Spirit. What a promise of the new covenant in which we stand. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Before we do that, I'd like for you to just examine your heart before the Lord. In light of this verse, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Examine your own life. Examine the state of your soul. Examine your relationship to the moral law of God. What is true of you? Let's take a few moments and just examine that before the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we confess we are sinners still. But we are born again sinners, we are justified sinners, we are sinners who are now new creatures in Christ. We are sinners who have been made alive in Christ. And we are sinners who love your law, delight in your law. We know that it is not a perfect obedience, a perfect delight. But nonetheless it is there and we are characterized by those things. For that's your work in the new covenant. This is what our Savior has accomplished. This is the work of the Spirit that He is doing in us, has done and is doing. And so as we come to your table this evening, we thank you for this work as believers and we rejoice and we come and are reminded that this is the new covenant in the blood of Christ. Father, we pray, give us an increasing delight and love for your law, and an increased obedience, a universal obedience to your law. And Father, do this, that we might be conformed to the image of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and so glorify him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.